you no doubt feel it like me that when we talk about these things, anything that is in, I would say a headline, but now what's a headline anymore? It's, you know, a TikTok video or it's a, um, a news flash or it's shouting or mobs or something in the streets and everything. It seems like there's a, a, a you know, a, a set of hot button topics that we're like, oh, we got to say this extremely carefully or we're going to pay the price, right? And you feel the tension when we're doing a presentation like this of so many thoughts and emotions and then all of the distortion that comes with how this argument is typically framed and positioned. And uh, I hope you, you see, and I know most of you know this, but again, our audience, we want our audience to be made up of people that agree with us and don't. And uh, we believe the gospel's big enough to handle anybody's objections and considerations and things. But, um, you know, I, it's pretty obvious, right, that um, Wendy Merrill wouldn't fit the stereotypical hate monger who's not for the health and care of women who thinks that those are in low-income situations, don't deserve any good care, and all those kinds of things. All of the headlines that have been framed about, if you're for life, you must be against all of those things. And, uh, and, and it's not just her. She surrounds herself with people that have that same kind of compassion. And so the headlines lie to us. It makes us feel self-conscious about what we stand for. Because we know how it's being framed. And so we have to move boldly into truth and we have to move boldly into support in order for that perception to change. But if I'm being honest with you, I don't expect that perception to change for the majority. Most of us, and I'm going to include us in this so it's not a we versus them kind of typical argument that you hear, but most of us will do whatever we can to have full autonomy, answer to myself, not have my life interrupted and all that sort of stuff, and that's what often leads to this decision. We, we hear the argument of, none of this is in my notes, so I'm praying the Lord gives me again, I want to say the right things, but what we hear is, is so much about the... Um, there we go. What we hear is so much about the few that are tragically affected by this, that all of us would have this incredible compassion and go, I don't know what I'd ask you to do in that situation. And Wendy framed it perfect when she said, we have to remember because it's not our normal human reaction. When we see living, breathing people in front of us who are going through something extremely tragic as victims, we just want to coddle, we want to protect, we want to take care of. And, and the thought could enter our mind, but it's, we, we haven't met the baby yet. We don't know it's real and we don't want them to have to go through of and we don't want to. That's all legitimate for us to at least pause and think, how do we handle these tough questions? How do we show the utmost compassion? But I got to be honest with you, I was doing some digging. I don't often go out and say, what does the world all say about this? Because it's hard to take sometimes. But the promotion end of why we should allow this is way beyond just the few tragic stories. It's full-blown admittance that it's not a baby until I decide I want it. And if it's an inconvenience, then I want the right to be able to act based on that. And so this is what we do as human beings. I'm saying we again. We take a little bit of wiggle room and we make it a full-blown right. And we just say, how can we abuse this? Even if it had the best of intentions to begin with or however it starts, I don't know. But it turns into the kind of thing that we just take and run with. And it becomes this massive monstrosity. 
And there are some that are fighting to get this back and say, hey, look, this is all about a life. And so that's why I'm so thankful for Wendy and for Resolve Life First Choice Pregnancy. She's given us a little bit of window that we can still mess up that name if we want. But uh, I, was, I was impressed that we actually got it down so quickly, you know, started seeing it in print over the last couple of months. And we, then she told us it's not time to use it yet. So we're working on it. Our, our gospel message, our biblical understanding is a life of contrast. It, it is a black and white kind of thing. Even though so much of our life is nuanced in gray, the life in Christ that we have is a direct and absolute contrast to a quote unquote life without him. So when Wendy comes and talks about saving lives, um, she's not motivated by, sorry, this will drive me crazy forever because that one little dog hair or whatever I have will just do this forever. I've noticed it's like a ploy of the devil. It's just like, here I am, not going to land. <laughs> Stick to the notes, Brent. <laughs> Rather than just her being able to put her head on her pillow at night, <clears throat> excuse me, and say, I've done something good. It makes me feel good about me and I'm contributing, that sort of thing. She's more led and those that serve with her are more led to imitate their savior, to show that compassion for human life, to literally save lives and to see even the conversion of souls, which we see happens. It's not just solving that problem, but it's introducing them to the love of Jesus. And while I wouldn't say that none of them are in it for the accolades, it's not the accolades here now. It's to hear from their Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. That's in contrast to how we would live our lives before we met Christ. I want your immediate approval when I'm not living for Christ. I need that immediate feedback that what I'm doing counts for me and makes me feel good about me, right? Our, our reasons for serving are different. The power that we operate under is different. We've been talking about this a lot as we've been going through Ephesians where we have this treasure chest of, of power, as it, as it were, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it isn't so that I can just zap lightning bolts at things and cause blessings to fall in my life and pay off that car and do this other thing and fix my health problem and everything. That it's that ultimately, no matter what happens to me on this earth, my sins have been paid for, that my, my guilt is lifted off of me so that no matter what happens in this life, when I die, that's not the end. I will resurrect and be joined with him at the right hand of the Father. And that power walks with me through my life and helps me to change and transform and to leave that old, old life behind, further and further behind. And in contrast, we would say that pursuing the good life is more about deferred reward or it's found through service. Not self-service, but the service of others. And of course, being found in Christ. So when we come to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, we've been working our way through this um, letter, which had its intended audience at the church in Ephesus, but there's also some belief that there's a little bit of circulation that other other uh, churches in the area would have also received this letter. And so some of the challenge was spreading throughout the, the area. And we had said that that actually helps us a little bit, that Paul normally would address a specific place with a specific problem, mention a few people by name. But this gives us the sense that everything that he would want to say to all the churches, ours included in 2022, um, would be included in this letter. So it makes it even more applicable for us 
if I could say it that way, knowing again that all of Scripture is inspired, profitable, and uh, available to us as the church today. So when we come to chapter 2, we're going to see this stark contrast between the quote-unquote life that we had before we met Jesus and the one that we've now been given. And, and some have said that the tone of the letter changes really quickly, but only momentarily when we get to chapter 2. It goes from, if you're musicians in the room, you, it goes from a major key to a minor key feel awfully quick. Your major keys are what your pop songs are going to be written off, the ones that your love songs, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm going to have to ask for if someone can grab some water for me. <laughs> I don't know where it is, but <clears throat> thank you. Oh, you didn't drink off that though. Did you Scott? <laughs> Actually, Scott, if there was anybody I'd drink after, it'd be you. <laughs> oh, and my wife, of course, I guess that didn't sound. <clears throat> Major key, minor key, you know it if you know music. <clears throat> the scriptures give us this contrast, and this contrast is going to come to us in the form of pointing out the distinct natures that are at play when we come to Christ. We have a previous nature and now a new nature. Let's go to our text in verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, we're hitting that minor key. That's that kind of heavy, solemn-sounding note when Paul says, And you are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." I'm going to put up for you here a, a picture of, of my wife's true love in life, okay? This is Rory, and um, um, oh my God, yeah, Rory is a Yorkie, a Yorkshire Terrier, and um, she is as good as she is adorable, um, all six pounds of her and stuff, and certainly high energy and all these sorts of things, but when I think of a dog... I'm going to be a little sexist here. I think of a man's dog. Like, I want a man's dog. You know, I want the kind that cares about where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking. You know, it's just look, looking at me like a Labrador. Like, how can I please you? You know, there's some girth to it. You can wrap your arms around the dog. You can everything. This is not my idea of a dog. And I'll often tell Rory, I wish we had a real dog. Instead of this cat that I have. You know, cause she does, she does seemingly cat things. She lays, lays on top of the couch, looks out the window. Um, she's kind of dainty and everything. You know, cats just have that kind of thing about them and everything. But as much as, this has got a point here, as much as I try to pin the label or the nature of a cat on Rory, she does everything like a dog would do. I won't even get into all the detail cause you know. But she's very much a dog. Even even as she's lounging on the top of the couch, looking out the window like a cat, all she's doing is squirrel, 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 bird, bird, squirrel. And like, let me at it. I got to chase it down, right? I know cats kind of do that. But don't cats also give you that? Uh, I'll get around to it. Maybe. 
But this dog is a total dog, you know? Somebody shows up, I had guests over yesterday, and she just wouldn't stop barking, wouldn't stop protecting, wouldn't stop doing things that dogs do to an annoying degree. So no matter how much I tried to pin a nature on her because of what I think about her, it's not true of her. She is all dog. Dogs do what dogs do. That's the greatest theological conclusion you can come to today. That because of its nature, it is going to eventually, no matter how it masks itself, tries to be something else, it will be true to its nature. Dogs do what dogs do. So Paul is saying to us that your nature formally was that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. And he's not talking metaphorically. I'm tempted sometimes to take this as being a, an artistic way or a metaphoric way of saying, you know, you didn't have much going on for yourself. So it was as though you were dead. But he's not saying it's as though. He says, no, you were literally dead. And you say, well, yeah, but I was moving around and breathing. And, and that was part of my problem is my moving around and breathing got me into a lot of trouble and everything. Yes, but spiritual death is 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 a disconnection from anything holy, from anything godly, from any ability to do the thing that catches God's attention in an impressive kind of way. That's why we talk so much about the fact that we aren't saved by our works, which our text will get us into over the next several weeks. That my deadness, my spiritual deadness means I had no interest in the things of God. I had no response to the things of God in my own power. I could maybe do some religious things, but all of those things were to make me feel better about my existence, to make me feel better about me. Why? Because dogs do what dogs do and dead people take care of dead people. Being dead in Christ means I'm incapable of producing anything that is able to respond to God. So Paul is giving us like an autopsy report saying, and the reason why this person is dead here is because of their trespasses and sins. And there's a lot to those two words that we don't really have a lot of time to get into, but it is that underscoring of the nature of we are producing what it is that we are. You know, in our culture and growing up, we used to, well, we still do talk about sins as individual things that we do. And so we say, I have, I have sinned. And so I need to correct that or I need to stay away from those sins. Or we say to people, you're not behaving very Christian. And we talk about our goodness or our badness in terms of actions and behaviors. But when Paul says that you're dead and your trespasses in sins, there's like two things going on here. Your trespasses, you've, you've crossed the line, you've made the mistake, you've done your thing, but there's also this underlying sin that is producing that in your life. You're not trespassing just by accident. You're trespassing because you're a trespasser at heart. You're not lying just because, oh, I didn't even know I had that available to me. No, something in your heart said, you need to cover your tracks. You need to not be honest about this. You don't gamble just because you're, you know, and you can just go down the list. You're not doing those things just because the idea occurred to you. There's something, and Jesus says it's the things of the heart that eventually find their way out of the mouth. It is the nature of those who are dead. Simply put, we're not sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we are sinners. 
There's a subtle point to us that Paul's making here in this text that was probably a lot more obvious to the audience of the day. You remember, Paul is writing to a church that's made up of Jews and those who were not born Jews were not converted to Judaism. And they would be referred to as the Gentiles. And so those two groups had very different histories, very different opinions of one another. And Paul is moving this church made up of both groups towards unity in the body. And so as he's saying these things, he's leveling the playing field between the Jew and the Gentile. He's, he's saying, hey, we have the same nature. Regardless of our pedigree, regardless of how or where we were born, regardless of what religious things we gave ourselves to in our tradition or the philosophies that we followed that were against God, we all started from the same place. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Gentile in the audience is like, oh, here we go again. I know I wasn't religious. I know I didn't serve the one true God. No, and then Paul starts laying it on. He says, no, and we and our Jew and Gentile alike, this was our nature before we knew Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what did we do with our deadness? We were disobedient. This is why we say, even though we were dead, it wasn't a physical death that we couldn't move around and couldn't even get ourselves in trouble because he said, you once walked this way. He was talking about how we ordered our own behavior and some have actually seen a little bit more because we talk about just walking so often in, in, in ways of like how you conduct yourself, what you do. But even some have found some deeper meaning in the ancient language in this with more of a meandering or a browsing that takes place. You know, it's kind of like when you go window shopping, for instance. I know I don't have the money to go, so I'm just going to go and look, and I'm just going to go and browse. And then so often we walk out of there going, what have I just done? I was just coming to browse. I was just coming without purpose or without direction, and then I made some choices that now I have to figure out how I'm going to pay for this and everything. There's that sense, he says, that when we were dead in our trespasses, we meandered or browsed. I like to refer to it as being caught in a current. And this system of life, this world that we live in, it kind of takes you on... A current. Now, one of my favorite things to have done, I've done it twice, um, is whitewater rafting. And it's been a while. Where's Gus? Where are you? Gus, how long have you been married? That was almost quick enough. He did do that kind of head thing. That was pretty good. I'll give you credit. Yeah, I'd have to count children and do the, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I asked Gus because that was a bachelor party trip, I think, that we did and stuff like that. And so would you and Sarah get remarried so we could do that again? That'd be great. Appreciate that. Of course, with that haircut, she probably would want to. Looking pretty sharp. Anyway, stick to the notes, Brent. When we go white water rafting, the guides will often tell you that how the condition or the flow or the speed of the river is going. And, you know, when I don't know much about all of the areas and stuff, but up in the forks, you have the two rivers that kind of come together and launch out and stuff. And they say that if you if you catch it when the dam is being released more, there's a greater current. And you're if you're more adventurous and you want to have sort of the scarier ride, that's the time to catch it. And uh, I think we've been fortunate both times that we've gone to have caught that and it's been a real exciting trip and everything and i was thinking about this when i was thinking about this caught up in the current thing that we run into in our deadness in our trespasses and sins i want to i want you to imagine 
uh, uh, the dam at the, at the opening of the river before everyone uh, gets in their raft and everything having three d- distinct doors. And each door that lifts up just increases that current and increases that flow. Because the scripture says, especially in this passage, that those three doors have a name. And the first is the world. And that's the system of values, the attitudes that have just permeated the culture and the society that we're in that are blatantly against God. And this always requires us to conform to this ever-changing standard. The target keeps moving. Be this way in order to satisfy us and be cool with us. And we go and do that. And it's like, ah, we changed it over here. Go and do that instead. And so we run over there and do that. The world is this current, this flow, that if we just jumped into with our rafts would take us right downstream, right? Well, when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you've got no fight against that. You've got no awareness that that's even happening. You're just flowing and moving. He also warns us about the prince of the power of the air who is known as Satan himself, the devil. As he influences this worldly system and all of its um, powers and all of its uh, machinations by his armies using lies to manipulate. So that second door opens and that current starts rushing even stronger. And it can feel like an adventure the more that that picks up and the more that that takes you down the road, but it's certainly fraught with a lot of danger. And our text also tells us that we, us, the innermost us, our flesh, our fallen nature with its desires is that third door that opens and it uses weapons of self-justification. You deserve this. It's who you are. It's your nature. Why are you fighting it? Theologians call this depravity, which doesn't necessarily mean that we're all by, by the fact that before we know Christ that we're depraved means that we're all as bad as the next person. We certainly know that there are people on death row or there's people that you live near or something like that. And you could do the comparison and go, well, I'm not as bad as them. And that isn't what depravity teaches us, but the depravity of man tells us that we are all as bad off as we could be. By God's common grace to let society continue to stay somewhat intact and to move forward a little bit, he he allows the ability for us to still do good for other people. Even if we hate God or whatever, there's plenty of people out there doing good that don't share your values. But depravity means we're all as bad off as we could be, meaning that we have nothing in ourselves to save ourselves to impress a holy God. Every part of our motivation, our existence, our cravings and desires is tainted by sin. I can do great things for all the wrong reasons. And that happens all around us. We're going to get into that more as we get into verses 8, 9, and 10 um, in this chapter going forward. The question for us is how we see humanity's true condition. If you pay attention to the things that you see, you know, what you're watching and stuff like that, I don't want to sound like a prude or a legalist that says you can't watch anything that doesn't, you know, elevate Jesus all the time and stuff. Sometimes you have to look for some of those common grace things and see what the Lord's saying and speaking through those things to understand where your culture is at and everything. It's really bad practice when we start getting into the list of things you can and can't do. 
But at the same time, if you start observing, you start just instead of mindlessly entertaining yourself or something, you start observing and saying, what is the um, the perception of humanity's true condition based on what I'm taking in, listening to, being a part of? You'll hear several different takes on that. Some will say that mankind or, you know, we're all okay, we're well. We just need to develop some healthy habits. We need to um, use our basic goodness for good and tap into that to realize that. You hear buzz phrases in that thinking like life balance or self-care or a better outlook, more positive outlook. We certainly wouldn't sniff at that and say, that's wasteful, that's stupid. I mean, I want to be around positive people. Not into all the crystal things and all that sort of stuff, but if you're kind of generally happy, it's a lot better than if you're just angry all the time. But that comes from a, a position of saying mankind is basically good. They're doing all right. They just need a little nudge in the right direction. Others, though, you'll see that man, they'll say that man is sick and needs intervention or medical and mental support. We certainly see the effects of that around us. We see many that are suffering and struggling and we try to diagnose their condition and try to figure out what the right thing to do to solve that problem. And we use words like disease or chemical imbalance or we look to things like therapy and that sort of thing to work those out. And again, in an economy of common grace and general goodness in in God's plan for keeping society from absolutely spiraling out of control... We could say that does us some good. But theologically speaking, neither of those outlooks go deep enough to the real problem that Paul is trying to communicate here. He said, we were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, which means that we need new life. We don't need self-help. We start to use words in that camp like desperate or lost or needing rescue or salvation. You see, there's a stark contrast. If we don't see the true nature of the problem, we settle for short-term solutions. And, and Jesus is, is, is offering a solution that goes to the core of the problem, to the heart of the matter. You see, we don't need resuscitation. We need resurrection. We see it all around us. Our problems are not ultimately fixed by legislation, right? Or education or even indoctrination. What you and I need is a radical resurrection from the radical death that we once walked in. And so therefore we can praise the Lord for the contrast of outcomes. Let's go a little bit further in our text in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the contrast and outcome is that life was made available and there were many that took hold of it. There were many that were able to respond to it. If we go back to our study in Ephesians 1, we understand that that wasn't of ourselves. That wasn't of our own initiative, but the Lord had made us alive together with him as these verses have told us. And that phrase, made us alive together, is really kind of a long way of translating one word in the original language. 
And so we have to say, made us alive together in him to understand all that was going on. The King James, an older translation of the English Bible, um, was able to do it with one word. It's just unfortunately a word we don't use anymore. And some of you will have memorized your Bibles this way. It says, and you hath he quickened. And that quickened is that, in other words, he initiated the life. He breathed in to a lifeless corpse. He, by his own word, his spoken word, gave life to those who were otherwise dead. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come, uh, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, you know when this life comes into you. Some have had dramatic stories. Some of, some have recounted for us what life was like walking through this earth in a dead corpse. And, and we're drawn into the contrast of that story because of the decisions, the heartbreak, the abuses, the failures, the sicknesses, all those sorts of things. And then they're able to say, but when Christ moved in, it all changed and my outlook is completely different. And we're compelled, we're drawn to those stories because we see that contrast. But I'm telling you, if you see theologically that all of us, even the, the worst of the bunch, the ones that we would look at and go, that, that one's a baddie, and even the ones that we would say, well, that one's pretty good. What do you mean they, they needed Christ? All of us, that's why Paul is saying we, us, our, were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the contrast is such that walking in that death, even though it might have looked good in this world, was producing no results for God. Until he quickened us. He made us alive together with him. A great evangelist, um, at the time of his conversion and coming to Christ, he wrote a letter to his wife. His name's Charles Fuller. And this is what he wrote. And I want us to hear a testimony in this. This is the, the kind of thing that happens to even those that we might say are the good. And, that, and yet still the contrast is quite stark. He says, there's been a complete change in my life. Sunday, I went up to Los Angeles and heard Paul Rader preach. I never heard such a sermon in all my life from Ephesians 1.18. Now my whole life and aims and ambitions are changed. I feel now that I want to serve God if he can use me. I love that line. Instead of making the goal of my life the making of money. I, I don't know much about Fuller's background or what stage of life or station in life he was in at the time. But if he's saying my pursuit was just the making of money, I'm going to assume that he was on his way to being well-to-do, probably a productive member of society. And yet he's saying something in me fundamentally had to change. Something, I recognized how dead I was in Christ and something needed to be made alive. And he says, now my whole life has changed how do we know that? Because his aims and ambitions are different. Regardless of the kinds of things that we were busy about in our deadness, when we came to Christ, when he breathed new life into us, now all of those things had new meaning. I'm always amazed. I love being around people who are new to their faith and they start to realize things that I didn't have to say to, him, to them. Not something that we necessarily preached on or their small group covered or anything, but the presence of the Holy Spirit started shedding new light on old behaviors, 
or new light on a lack of purpose or a lack of aim in other aspects of life. And they're saying, I don't know where this is coming from, but I don't care about this stuff anymore. I don't know why I want to be over here or to be around a bunch of weirdos like us. I like these people now. You know, there's a difference. There's a stark contrast because the Lord has put value and put life into us. We need to ask from this text and the rest of the text when we get into it in the subsequent weeks will help us answer this. But we need to ask, how could God do this for such an unresponsive corpse like me? He says it in a verse that I skipped over real quick. If you're following in your Bibles, but it'll be here on the screen. This is what he said in verse five. He says, by grace, you have been saved. We've talked a lot about grace here at our church and Lord willing, we'll always talk a lot about grace because we know that it's getting the opposite of what we deserved. It's, it's often referred to as unmerited favor, but which is very true. It's favor shown to us something we didn't earn, but mercy. Remember we said the difference in mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is the judgment hammer coming down on us. And grace is saying, not only will I not get the judgment hammer down on you, but I will restore your account. I will set you as one who's always done everything right. This thought occurred to me earlier. I think um, when Eric was talking through the Apostles' Creed and we were just talking about the tears that are going to be wiped away by Jesus. And I often imagine those tears to be tears of sorrow, of remorse. And man, I can't believe I did all that and everything. And then that quote from Charles Stanley about we won't have to repent because we will have already done that. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I wonder how many of those tears are just going to be generated by seeing the value of grace. Looking at that medical report that was illustrated to us, that bill. And then that moving us and welling us up saying, how in the world could you pay that? Why would anybody do that for me? Might those be some of the tears that he wipes from our eyes? Because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we've encountered grace. That's how he does it. He does it through, uh, through his vehicle of grace. So the next logical question would be why? Verse 4, we went from verses 1 through 3, and then we jumped to 5 and beyond. Verse 4 says the two, perhaps the two most hopeful words in all of Scripture. But God. It seems like, in contrast, everything that is but us, or involves us, it adds to our debt, it adds to our pain, it adds to our suffering, but God... Every time he's entered into the equation, it's for life, it's for restoration, it's for grace. Why would he do this? It's because it's his nature as well. But God being rich in mercy, which is what chapter one's been helping us see all along, that treasure chest of mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. In mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve In grace, he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. But love is always God's chief motivator for everything he does. It's who he is. It's what God does. So verse 7 tells us that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. For some reason, a couple weeks back, that word kindness just jumped off the page to me. Again, the headlines, the, 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 the um, emotion that goes into all the things that we were talking about, saving the life of the unborn and everything. Do you ever, ever hear anybody say, I know they mean well, but they're doing it wrong or they're doing it in disagreement with me. I know they have compassion. I know they don't ever camp on the fact that people can still be kind and do the hard thing. And yet God does it every moment of every day. That it's in kindness toward us that he lavishes us with his grace. Angry God gets all the headlines. Wrathful God gets all the headlines. But you and I know the kindness of God. And he wants to show his kindness to the generations to come as we live it out before them. We're going to get into the whys a lot more in the next couple of messages as well. But that is going to um, get us started along that, that line. The great contrast exists before Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, as a result of Christ made alive together with him. Would you please stand? Lord God, thank you so much, Father, for your, your mercy and grace that we do, we absolutely do take for granted. And I think, Lord, because there's no way this side of eternity we can really comprehend all that we've been shown. And so there's parts of it we just have to compartmentalize and just trust that you've done that. And then there's other times where we feel it, we experience it, we know it right before us. But Lord, the truth of the matter is how much we treasure it, how much we value it, how much we acknowledge it does not change the amount that's been shown to us because it's all of your work and all of your doing. Cause us, Lord, to surrender and submit to that grace, but also, Lord, call us and continue to send us to show it to the nation, to show it to those around us, Lord, to show the heart that you have for those that are suffering and sinful and dead knowing that so were we, but God. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.